0: Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast. Myself, Galen Stops. And I am particularly excited for this podcast episode because uh, we are getting the band back together. I am joined today by my former colleague, and partner in crime Colin Lambert who is the co-founder of the full effects which is a new website that's just launched by the time anyone's listening to this it will be live and up and running and it provides news analysis opinion and insight on all things fx Colin thank you very much for joining me thanks
1: mate we're allowed to do the old hits we're not are we we've got to do all (laughs) our new stuff just to make sure we disappoint our audience
0: (laughs) I I know I mean so one of the things I, I love about these podcasts is Most of the time, it's an excuse for me to sit down and chat to someone who's far more clever than me for 20, 30 minutes about all things FX-related. You know, last episode, we had a doctor on, for goodness sake. So from the sublime to the ridiculous. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At least my team is above yours in the
1: English football ladder.
0: Well, considering I support Brentford, that's not a hard challenge. So I wanted to start you off on a topic that is big for us at 360T, but I know also one that you have been writing about, commenting about, and kind of slightly banging the drum about, which is FX swaps.
1: (laughs) Galen, I think I was banging on about this before 360 was even invented. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying I'm like a stock clock. I'm just sitting there every year I predict this, and one year I'm going to be right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So FX swaps, there does seem to be finally, broadly, kind of a willingness and interest in the market to kind of change and update how these products are traded. So I guess the thing I wanted to pick your brains about is, what do you see as the impetus for change here? Because percentage-wise, right, if you look at the BIS numbers, FX swaps have always been a huge part of the FX market. They've yeah, grown steadily over the last 20 years. So why now, I guess, is my question.
1: Because I think there's been a lot of drivers to the point we're at now. Where I, and I agree with you, and you know, this is something I was saying probably last year especially, you know, this time last year before the world kind of changed for most of us, that the technology didn't exist. The technology does exist now. I think also the pandemic has kind of given it an extra impetus as well um, because it's difficult to regulate or observe trader behavior in a dispersed workforce. And when you're dealing voice, it becomes even harder because, you know, is that line recorded? Yes, most of them are. But do you know if that person's sitting on a signal app talking to the you know, the counterparty or the broker at the same time. There's long been a desire to automate the voice broking element of this. To me, the drivers haven't changed apart from this nervousness on the part of, I guess, the compliance and oversight function that we really haven't got great eyes and ears on what these people are doing when they're trading voice. So I would say, yeah, you need to replicate the experience of the voice broker. What does an FX swap trader want to do? They want to clear large amounts and they want to clear it Fairly discreetly, and they want to trade at mid-market in pretty much most markets that you look at. It's certainly at the short end, but even you know when you get out to sixes, nines, and maybe the one year above that, it becomes a bit more difficult because the flow is harder. I, I, I totally accept that. But generally speaking, they want to get a good counterparty that they can do a large ticket with, and they don't want it to be particularly public. I'm not sure how we did that four years ago. You know, four years ago, it would have to be a totally dark environment, and you'd have to build all these rules around it. Now we can. So I think for me, it will be number one, if we can replicate the processes, which I think we can now, that's why I think there's impetus. Uh, number two, you've got a new generation of management coming through that has grown up in the tech era. You know, We need to remember that five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, a lot of the senior management in the banks, and this is for me predominantly about the banks, the interdealer market, a lot of the management there was, yeah, had grown up and done most of their trading in the voice era. We now are getting to the stage where a lot of senior people making decisions are products of the electronic era. And it's natural. They look to this sort of thing. You know, inter-dealer-wise, the voice brokers, I mean, I don't know the numbers from the BI survey, although I used to sleep with a BIS survey as bedtime reading. I've kind of <laughs> got out of that habit for the last three months. But I mean, it was a significant chunk. Yeah, I think we're talking like half a trillion dollars, something like that. These people want to automate as much of that as they can. What does the voice broker do? It gets a run from one of its lines and broadcasts that and then everyone else starts trading around it and they start negotiating to get people to trade half a yard of threes at mid market. So we can now automate that.
0: Okay, so expanding out from FX swaps slightly now, more broadly as you look across kind of the FX industry, what do you think the biggest barriers are to change when it comes to technology and infrastructure?
1: Well, I think one of them's temporary. And I think this time last year, I was actually in London starting a business trip. And I saw a lot of people then. And the optimism was pretty evident that people's technology budgets were greater than they were the year before. I wouldn't I mean it wasn't the case that in every, you know, every instance they were a lot more, but there was definitely budget being allocated to technology and it was targeted at solutions, which I think is really what you're getting at here in terms of like the availability on and innovation. When March hit, that budget effectively went into making sure that firms can operate, survive the year, disperse workforce. A chunk of that budget was spent on actually getting business as usual into a very unusual environment. So I think the barrier to change is possibly an extended pandemic, because I think whilst most people have settled down to what they're doing, they can work on these new solutions. The challenge is going to be rolling them out. I suspect the biggest barrier is going to be the sort of physical location of the workforce, but that will be overcome this year, yeah, probably, hopefully this year. Looking ahead, I would say it's probably the willingness of buy-side clients in particular. Firms are looking at it going like, well, you know what? FX is not my primary concern here, especially in the corporate world where it's just an accounting function, quite rightly, because they're about building their chips or processing technology. So I think the buy side is always going to be naturally reluctant to embrace too much innovation because they don't feel they need it. The hedging works. You know, they have access to liquidity. The only thing I would say to people on the buy side that have this attitude is, why don't you look back to the way things were 10 years ago? And 10 years ago, the same arguments were being made. Oh, you know, my hedging works well. I've got a good panel of banks. I've got a piece of technology that, you know, straight through processes for me and whatever. Look at how much more efficient your FX hedging is now compared to 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, you didn't think there was a, a need for change. So I think overcoming that is going to be a big barrier. I don't think budget will be regulation. If we now regulation down, then yes, I would say regulation could very much be taken out of the equation when it comes to you know, one of the obstacles to innovation. Because I think what scares a few people is when you get this very, very fluid regulatory environment. And obviously, a change of US government is always something of a nervy time for a lot of people in the regulatory space. If we know what our regulatory demands are going to be, then you can allocate budget to it and really work on it. I think what worries people is that all of a sudden, a whole heap of new regulations come along. And guess what? As we saw in 2017, 18, all that tech budget you were trying to put onto innovation is now meeting regulatory demands. So I'd say it's a mixture of all those things, but definitely they can all be overcome Um, It's just a question of education.
0: So I'm going to offer a comment and then a tiny bit of pushback here. The comment I would say is certainly my observation has been last year, the pandemic hit and there was a initial scrabble where everyone was trying to just get sorted in this kind of new environment and establish new ways of doing things. And then everybody kind of went into somewhat wait and see mode because the outlook was just too uncertain in terms of what their operations will look like, in terms of being decentralized back at of the office, in terms of the forecast for the business, in terms of what market situation is going to be like. But I think what I, and I think lots of people internally at Three Sixty have observed at the back end of last year, was there was a really distinct change in the mentality of people. I mean, firstly, I think this was maybe due part to vaccines appearing, and suddenly that gave a bit more clarity, like, right, okay. Vaccines are now here, and now there is kind of a potential end date, even if we don't know what that end date is to the pandemic. But suddenly people went into a mode where it was like, right, we're going to be operating in this way for the foreseeable future. We can't afford to just stand still and wait on all these projects and all these ideas we have. We're going to start pushing through them. So I think that's been a big change. And I think that your point about the adoption of technology always being slow, and particularly on the buy side, is accurate. But I think that in a lot of cases, we're reaching a bit of a tipping point for two reasons. One, I think a lot of these trading desks are just under pressure to handle more flow without increasing their headcount. And you see this even on a corporate treasury desk, where you know, during the pandemic, they became more visible than ever, and their stature often, in some cases, rose within their organizations. But as you say, FX is not their main task. It's just something, an operational piece that they really want to get done as efficiently as possible so they can kind of get on with their day job, so to speak. So I think the pressure there for them to introduce technological solutions, workflow optimization, trade optimization, et cetera, that will let them do more with the same, I think that's one pressure. And I think also, I think for some of these firms, they've reached a tipping point because some of the technology they've been using for so long... Just does need updating. I think also, you know, we're going to a decentralized environment. Anything that requires a heavy installation, like something where you have to physically have something compared to web based solutions where new updates can be pushed online down to everything. I think that's a real driver that's beginning to maybe not rapidly, but certainly change how a lot of firms are looking at things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And actually, to be honest, I mean, like, this is not the first time I'm going to argue with myself. I think something that would actually really work towards your scenario is the fact that a lot of corporate treasuries now are actually tech companies themselves. We live in a tech era. Yeah. So as those tech companies look at, the inevitably they look to tech solutions. So you'll get a drive that will see the newer generation of corporate definitely embrace technology.
0: I've been reading stories in the press about you know, there's been talk of, in Europe, you know, regulating spot FX.
1: How can you have been reading things in a press? Oh, I haven't been writing anything for three months.
0: <laughs> very <laughs> droll, Colin, very droll. Uh, <laughs> there's been talk of, you know, spot FX regulation, and do they come up with an Australian-style regulation, which, yep. sitting in Sydney, you should be well familiar with. I- I've also read talk in the press about, should aggregators be considered MTFs? So, I guess my question to you is threefold, which is those two topics in particular. What are your thoughts? And then, do you think the direction of travel is still more into regulation, or will this kind of hiatus actually lead to a kind of a broader slowdown in the regulation of FX generally?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I think on the aggregator piece, my view has generally been that if you are providing a piece of trading technology, and you take a brokerage per trade from either party, you should be subject to the regulations because that's creating an unlevel playing field. If you've got platforms that have been told they have to be MTFs, and yet aggregators are providing what you could call maybe you know a 360T light type service, they haven't got the full functionality, but they're connecting customers to liquidity providers and charging a bro, why should they not be regulated? There are you know, reputational risks involved as well, because with a regulated unit, I guess, or business, there are gray areas in which you never step. But do we know that's going to be the case with a non-regulated platform? And I'm not suggesting anyone's doing anything dodgy out there. But the fact is, history shows that there are advantages to be had by changing your business practice. So personally, I think anybody that ever charges a brokerage for a trade should be regulated, the same as the others are. It's a trickier subject when you come to pure technology providers. For instance, you know, let's, let's assume, say, a corporate has gone to a technology provider and say, look, you, know, you provide our accounting system. Can you provide me with a connectivity solution? I've got these 10 LPs. I'm only allowed to trade with them. Can you connect me to their individual streams? And I'll just trade on that. That's a trickier one. Because then I'm looking at it like, well, really, you're just automating a process and you're not charging beyond the initial fee. So that, I think, becomes a bit of a gray area. But overall, absolutely, yeah, we should be about fairness, and we should be about transparency, and we should be about making sure everyone's on the same level playing field. And I don't think at the moment the rules do. As to whether there's a creeper regulation, inevitably, I think there probably is going to be, which I think is quite sad. The key is still for FX, in my mind, making sure that we don't have any breaches, any, you know, any more bad behaviours creeping in. Because you know, the industry is living on borrowed time when it comes to that. Down in Australia, they have a thing called the three counts policy where the third time you do something wrong, you're absolutely slammed after a couple of warnings and education. The FX industry has already had its three counts. So the next thing that goes wrong, it could lead to greater regulation. What I would say is that you're talking about one of the very few true 24, 55 financial markets in the world and trying to impose some sort of regulation on that has been tried before and hasn't really worked. And I don't think it will work because if you look at the retail FX space, the US got very tough on retail FX and I actually had no problem with anything they were doing. The same firms are still operating. They're just operating out of different jurisdictions. So yes, I think there will be a creep of regulation into FX, but I don't think it'll actually be that big because ultimately there will be providers that can move elsewhere away from regulation. There's always going to be jurisdictions that are going to be easier than others. And without wishing to open a very, very dark can of worms, who's to say that the UK isn't going to be a lighter touch regulation than the EU post-Brexit?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that Oh yeah, is a can of worms that we certainly uh, don't have time for on this episode of the podcast. <laughs> no,
1: um, no, definitely not.
0: All right. So, so, so talking about regulation, let's talk about the global FX code, which obviously does not have the status of regulation. One of the things that has been talked about many times with the FX Global Code is it's a living document. It's evolving and changing with the market, et cetera. Do you think that it's done a good job of that?
1: Oh, yes. And maybe.
0: (laughs) With shades of gray in between, huh?
1: Well, I'll tell you why. Because, I mean, I think generally speaking, as you know, I'm a fan of the Global Code. I do think that by having a document that says, this is how you should behave. Everyone knows the parameters. I tend to look at it this way. You know, when you have regular, you get new regulation comes out and there's going to be people in certain places around the world, they're going to book a meeting room and they're going to start working on, okay, how do we actually sort of find loopholes in this regulation to allow us to continue to do X, Y, Z. Under a code of principles, the very act of booking that meeting room means you're actually going outside the principles by looking for a loophole. So I think the global code is a very important piece of work. And I think when it came out, it did a tremendous amount in helping to alleviate some of the stronger pressures on regulating FX around the world. And I think it also would have saved a lot of people a lot of grief. when the global code did exist in forms of the ACI model code, but it just didn't have enough traction. The global code has got the traction from the leading institutions in the front exchange market. So I think it's done a good job. That's not to say that it doesn't face challenges. And I have to be honest, I am a little concerned about where the global code goes now. At the moment, there's sort of bouncing around the ideas around what do we do around riskless principle? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, why are you even bouncing ideas around riskless principle? The general definition of being a principle is you assume market risk from a risk transfer from a trade. You still have credit risk, you still have settlement risk oftentimes, but you are a principle to the trade because you are assuming the market risk. As an agent, you execute on behalf of the client and you pass the execution to the client verbatim. So how does a riskless principle work? I just don't understand it. But I don't believe you can be a principal without taking market risk. So we're just playing with language. And I think there's more important things that the global code should be looking at. And it's a reluctance to embrace some of these tough topics. You know, what? that's probably unfair of me. I would say it's an inability to get any real sort of concord on how we should approach the really tricky issues that
0: is the threat to the GFXC. I'm going to bring this full circle again and end with something positive on the code. I think that the code has actually surprised me to the upside in that it's obviously an imperfect document. I don't think it ever pretended to be otherwise. But I have been pleasantly surprised at not just the kind of original document, but the effort that the industry and the various groups involved have taken to try and keep it updated, to try and keep enhancing and improving it.
1: Yes, totally agree.
0: And, and here's a question for you: Last year, I think it was around March or April, I forget now. The GFXC released a statement, kind of reminding some people about the Prince of Codes. March. Thank you. Yep. Do you think that having the code, not just in place, but fairly well established by this point, actually helped the market to function better during those stress conditions last year? Oh, um,
1: yes. I mean, it was interesting because, I mean, you know, and, and I agree with you, even though I have issues with a couple of things that are going on around the global code, the fact that we're even talking about it shows me an industry that is actually willing to engage. And everyone in that global foreign exchange committee is willing to engage on these things. Um, it's just a pity we can't get some sort of consensus in my mind. But absolutely, I think you're right. It's been a positive thing. The thing on the end of month fixing I thought was interesting because it definitely had a, a really positive effect on the end of March fix. I mean, I was talking to people then and they were saying, yeah, we've got customers coming on there hedging their month end flows earlier than usual in response to that. And, you know, if there's any residue, then the residue of the residue, so to speak, will be done on the last day. And two or three institutions I spoke to that would normally be fairly large pre-hedgers said, we didn't need to pre-hedge anything in March because their customers came to us early. So that was good. The only thing I would point out is that the end of April fix was an absolute disaster and the market moved about 50 points just before and around the fix. So people have got short-term memories. (laughs) Maybe the the GFXE's just got to put a diary entry, 23rd of the month. Remind everyone about the month end fix. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's been a positive, definitely. And that was a good example. And I think the fact we're talking about it will tell people, especially newcomers to the industry, this is what's expected of you. And that should dampen anyone's intentions to sort of do something wrong.
0: The last question I have for you today, and I know we're into February now, which is kind of giving you the advantage because you've seen which way the wind is blowing already slightly. But uh, I couldn't go through this podcast, Colin, without asking you for uh, your trade of the year. What is Colin Lambert's trade of the year? Where's the money going to be made this year, Colin?
1: Um, Well, I haven't been working. So you'll be surprised to hear that I haven't looked at a single market at all. So I haven't got a clue. Is it too late to buy Bitcoin, Galen? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't don't know which thousand it's on at the moment. Is it too late to buy Bitcoin? You know what? I know we said we're not going to do our old hits, but I've got to do it let's sell shekel max <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know what i don't even know where the market is you'll need to sort of do go into 360t and just like you know work out where shekel max is at the open tomorrow and i will sell shekel there and we'll see how we go at the end of the year
0: all right well then we'll have to uh, have you back on again and check in on how your trade is doing at the end of the year colin <laughs>
1: Well, I look forward to that. Obviously, I'll be happy to come on and be ridiculed over the fact that Shekel Mex is probably the strongest performing cross for 2021, but there you go.
0: If your past performance is something to go on, that's pretty likely. So Colin...
1: Emotional roller coaster.
0: <laughs> Colin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: No, it's been great talking to you, mate. Appreciate and, it.
0: And thank you, everyone who's listening. Please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.